baptize you this way today through sprinkling. So, hey, for those of you who are our guests today, we want to thank you so much for being with us. My name's Eric, and I'm the lead pastor here, and I have already broken a sweat. Am I the only one? Anybody else in here during that worship set? Yeah, that was awesome. I had to work off the bacon anyway, so... I mean, nothing says freedom in Christ more than being able to have sanctified swine on Easter Sunday to celebrate our risen Messiah, right? And and of course, we're also, some of us are are aware as as we woke up this morning to some things in the news that uh, were pretty hard to hear, like bombings in Sri Lanka in churches specifically targeting Christ followers. Um, And we grieve with our brothers and sisters around the world as we recognize that we still live in a world that is very much opposed uh, to the gospel message and very much broken. And and then to, as we're coming in here this morning to have the helicopter flying around basically saying we're looking for a little seven-year-old girl named Michelle. And I just want to stop for a moment before we even begin and pray for Michelle, pray for her family, pray for our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka and around the world who are undergoing persecution because of their faith. Father God, we grieve the brokenness of this world. We grieve the pain that both we but also so many others experience day after day. And it looks different for each of us. But we live in a broken, fallen world. And we grieve the daily reminders of that. God, we grieve with this family right now who is desperately looking for their daughter. You know where she is. We lift up Michelle. We pray for your protection over her. We pray that you would reunite her with her family. We pray that you would use that to further your kingdom purposes however you can. God, we lift up those whose lives have been shattered by terrorist bombings in Sri Lanka. We grieve the loss of life, but we are grateful, Father God, that because of the cross, even terrorists don't get the last word. Even death doesn't get the last word. And we pray that you would use that to advance your kingdom purposes, to wake your image bearers up, and to bring them to a point, a crisis of belief where they have to say, what, what, do, what do I believe and what am I going to do with it? We lift up today to you as well. As we, one part of the big, beautiful, dysfunctional family of God, gather here at Lighthouse to worship you and celebrate the greatest act of love in history. We pray, Father God, that your spirit would per- pervade this place and ultimately your will would be done. We entrust this time into your hands, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So here's the thing about Easter. And I, I said this on, on Good Friday as well. For, for those of you who this may be the first time you've darkened a doorway of a church on Easter, I am so grateful you are here. But my guess is the vast majority of us in here have been in this place, sat in these seats or seats like them, heard this message dozens of times, or in Merv's case, like 90 times, right? And the danger is that it can become such a familiar story that ultimately it loses its power. It's almost like a song that you sing over and over to the point where you know the words by heart. You don't even need to think about what you're singing. You just sing the tune. It becomes a melody. And my desire is that we would not lose kind of the awesome power of this story. It is the single greatest act of love in history, and it is the best news the world has ever heard, but it can get lost because it is simply familiar. And so my, my prayer, as I, we were pr- preparing for today, my prayer was, God, how do we keep this fresh? And then I realized, well, how did Jesus tell the good news? How did Jesus um, teach in such a way that it was powerfully transformative in people's lives? And he did it through telling stories. More often than not, Jesus didn't just teach truth. He told stories. And in the midst of a story, it doesn't just translate information, but it allows a person to find their place in the story, to experience the truth. And it elicits both emotion and information. And so let's take a page out of Jesus' playbook. And I'm just going to tell you a story this morning. I'm going to tell you the story of the first Easter as one of Jesus' own disciples, a guy named Matthew, explains it. So this is straight out of Matthew's gospel. Um, I'm not going to ask you to turn there only because I want you to hear the story. But I do need to give you one caveat in this. 
And that is normally on Easter, we tend to focus on the gospel story from the perspective of those for whom it mattered the most, Jesus' disciples. And we're going to do that. But within Matthew's gospel, we're also introduced to a lot of other bit players who also experience the Easter story and whose perspectives also matter. People like Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman procurator or kind of ruler over that particular area in Israel. He was Rome's representative. He spoke with the power of Caesar. So his perspective matters. And there was guards that were at the tomb during the resurrection. Their perspective matters. There was a a, a whole group of people called the Sanhedrin, which were the Jewish rulers who under Rome still had some authority over the Jewish people. And this Sanhedrin, this group of rulers had a lot of influence on that day. Their perspective matters. And so I'm going to tell you this story from a lot of different perspectives. You with me? You ready? All right, let's go. So it was the day after that false Messiah, the so-called Jesus from Nazareth, had died. And yet, even still, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were concerned because they'd heard the whispering in the temple courts. They'd heard about that prophecy that before Jesus died, he had said that he would rise again after three days. People were so unbelievably willing to accept any lie that so long as it gave them hope. They would accept it hook, line, and sinker, and man, had they swallowed this lie from Jesus. But he was dead. At least Rome was good for that, right? Because the Romans were good at killing people, and Jesus was dead, and dead people stayed dead. But there was always the, the danger that Jesus' cowardly disciples who had run and hid instead of standing with their rabbi, that they might come and try to steal the body and so somehow to prolong the charade that he was the Messiah. And so the Pharisees and the, the, the Sanhedrin decided that they would turn to Rome because they could help in this as well. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, and the rest of the Sanhedrin made their way up to the the fortress of Antonia, where Pontius Pilate, the, the leader over the Roman legions, stood. They went there to request an audience with Pontius Pilate. And they were ushered into the praetorium, where Pontius Pilate sat upon his judgment seat, And then Caiaphas, the high priest, approached Pilate with far more deference than some unwashed Gentile would normally be given. But he spoke with the power of Rome, so deference was deserved. So Caiaphas approached. Sir, he said, you know that Jesus, that that rabble rouser, that, that... False Messiah was killed yesterday. We're grateful for your support in that. But we have heard whispering that Jesus suggested that he would rise again after three days. And we are fearful that his disciples are going to come and try to steal the body. And if they're able to do so, well then the deceit would be even greater in his death than it ever was in his life. So here's what we ask of you, O great Pilot, would you allow us to take a contingent of Roman soldiers to the tomb and guard it for those three days, put a seal upon it so that nobody can cross into it, so that nobody can take the body, because we're concerned for your ability to control the people if we don't. Well, Pilot saw the wisdom in their request, and so he said, yes, take a, a unit of guards to the tomb. Seal it up the best way that you know how so that nobody can take the body. And so that's what they did. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin led this group of guards to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laying the day before. And the guards put a seal upon that huge stone that had been rolled to cover up the tomb. If anybody were to break the seal, that would be like raising a hand against Rome and their life would be forfeit in that moment. And the guards remained at the tomb while the Pharisees and Sadducees and all of the Sanhedrin went home to enjoy the Passover festivities. Well, that night, 
was a quiet night but from the perspective of the guards. For them, it was a really nice turn of events because all of a sudden they were guarding a dead body and you didn't have to worry about feeding a dead body. You didn't have to worry about cleaning up after a dead body. You didn't have to worry about the dead body wandering off anywhere. They spent the evening telling crude jokes and exaggerated stories around the campfire. They began to wish in their hearts that their assignment was more than just a couple of days because this was a pretty nice alternative to their regular responsibilities. As the night ended and the sun began to rise in the east, the guards who'd been nodding off were awakened by the sound of footsteps coming near the tomb. And so they they began to look around and they saw a group of women, Jewish women, coming to the tomb with fear in their eyes because of the Jewish guards. And just as they were approaching, the ground began to tremble. And then it began to quake. And there was a massive grating noise so loud that it assaulted their ears. And the guards were looking around for what was causing the noise. And when they looked at the the tomb, their hearts dropped because the The stone that was in the way had been rolled aside. It was open. And sitting on top of that stone was one that looked like an emissary of the gods. He shone so brightly their eyes hurt. Some of these guards who were hardened men were terrified of him. Some even passed out in fear. None of them had the courage to reach for their weapon and take a step towards this emissary of the gods. But the angel, for that's what he was, ignored the guards. And he said he looked right at the women who had come to mourn their murdered rabbi. And he said, don't be afraid. I know you've come for, to see Jesus, but he's not here. He is risen. And he wants you to go and tell his disciples that he will see them again soon. That he's going to Galilee. Now go and tell them that Jesus is alive. And with that, the angel disappeared in a flash. (laughs) It took a few minutes for both the guards and and the women to pick their jaw up off the ground. And it was the guards who approached the tomb first. And as they peeked their head inside, their hearts sunk even further because it was empty. The body of Jesus was gone. And for a guard, that was the worst news possible because they had been given an assignment to guard the body. And since the body was no longer there, they had failed in their assignment, failed spectacularly. And they knew that they deserved death. That is what awaited them for failing in their job. The only hope that they had was if they could somehow convince the very people who demanded from Pilate that they be stationed there, the the Sanhedrin, and particularly Caiaphas, the high priest, if they could somehow get him to put in a good word for them, then maybe somehow they could escape the cross themselves. And so they rushed off to find Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin to tell them what had happened. Meanwhile, the women slowly approached the tomb with with an equal mixture of fear and hope in their hearts. And they peeked their head in, and it was exactly as the angel had said. The tomb was empty, save for the grave clothes that Jesus' body had been wrapped in. They stepped away from the tomb and, and began to hurry on back to the upper room where the rest of the disciples were hiding. Hiding because they were terrified that the very people who had arrested Jesus, accused him of insurrection, and ultimately demanded his death, that they might come after them as well. So they rushed to tell the good news to these disciples. And as they were going through the garden, suddenly they came face to face with Jesus in the flesh. Only didn't look, he didn't look like a man who had been beaten within an inch of his life just a few days before. He didn't look like a man who had been killed on a Roman cross just a few days before. He was radiant. Best of all, he was alive. And the women fell at his feet with tears in their eyes and began to worship him. And Jesus just smiled and reached down and picked them back up and said, my sisters, 
don't hold on to me. Go back to my brothers. Go back to my disciples and let them know that I'm alive. Let them know that they don't need to fear any longer. Tell them that I will meet them soon. I'm going ahead of them to Galilee and I will see them there. And so the, the, the ladies rushed back to the upper room with, with their chest burning with the greatest news the world had ever heard. Jesus was alive. He was risen. He was risen indeed. That's, that's the Easter story as Matthew tells it. And it goes on. But one of the things that was an important reminder for me is that normally we focus on the fact that the ladies are the first ones to the tomb to see the risen Jesus and to be able to share the gospel message. And that's true from the disciples' perspective. But there was another group of people that day that saw the empty tomb, saw the angel, heard what he had to say, and rushed off to tell the news. And that was this group of Roman guards. And we never really talk about them very much. But both of them saw the same things. Both of them heard the message that Jesus was alive. Both of them go to tell their own respective groups what they'd seen and heard. But both of them go with radically different feelings in their heart. For the ladies, it was elation, it was joy, it was confusion, but it was excitement to share the good news that Jesus was alive with the disciples. But for the guards, it was just the opposite. It was with fear and terror that they went to share this ridiculous story of an empty tomb and a shining emissary of the gods somehow telling them that Jesus was alive. It's ridiculous. And their only hope is for the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this group of religious leaders who were being oppressed by Rome. They were their only hope for salvation. And so they went with this story and they told, interestingly, the very people who throughout Israel were looked to to be the experts on when God's Messiah would come. They were the very ones who taught the rest of the Jews what to look for, what to expect, how to hearken, how to hurry up the day of the Messiah coming back. They were the very ones who were awaiting God's anointed redeemer. That's what the Messiah means, is the anointed redeemer, one who was anointed by God to redeem his people. They were the ones, this, this Jewish ruling group, who should have known exactly who Jesus was. And yet when they met Jesus... He didn't fit their expectation of what the Messiah would look like. He was very, very different because they were waiting. They were hoping for a revolutionary leader, somebody who could take the helm of Israel, reestablish them as a nation, throw Rome out, and reestablish the throne of Israel. That's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for a revolutionary, and instead they got a guy who, when he entered into Jerusalem, he tended to tweak the noses of the religious leaders more than he did the noses of the Roman guards and the Roman occupiers. Jesus spent more time pointing out ways that they had missed the heart of God than he did pushing back against the Roman occupiers. And for that reason, and because Jesus... Although he wasn't going to redeem Israel and throw off the yoke of Rome, Jesus still threatened the status quo. Because Rome might look at him as an insurrectionist and clamp down on all of the Jews, including taking away their influence. And so he had to go. And they had made the decision to demand that Jesus be crucified. They had made the decision that Jesus' body had to be guarded by Roman soldiers because in their mind, the only way that Jesus' prophecy, that he was going to be out of the tomb in three days, the only way that was going to happen is if the disciples came and stole the body because to them, a dead body stays dead. What a sad mindset from the, the religious leaders of God's chosen people. But they were given a second chance. They were some of the first to hear the good news, or at least the news, that Jesus wasn't dead, that the tomb was empty, to hear what the angel had said to these Roman guards. They had the opportunity to recognize that Jesus really was who he claimed to be and had done what he claimed to do, but they missed it again. Because when they heard 
that the tomb was empty, when they heard what the angel had said, their response was not, He really is our Messiah. Instead, their effort was to clamp down on it, to stop that message before it ever got out. And so what did they do? They did the same thing that they had done to get Jesus crucified in the first place. They bought him off. They had paid Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own disciples, 30 pieces of silver to, to sell him out. And now they say, hey guys, I know you, you, you think you know what you saw, but that's not what you saw. Let us tell you what you saw. You were overpowered by Jesus' disciples. They stole the body from you. We will give you a large sum of money if that's the story you say. And we will also put in a good word to Pilate for you so that you won't die. In other words, you lie, you live. Meanwhile, the ladies... Head back to the upper room with this story. And their, their, their hearts on fire with the excitement to say, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. Now, some of the disciples were very, very confused by this. They were skeptical. They had to go see the empty tomb for themselves. They had to see the grave clothes where they were. But the lady said, we've seen Jesus. And he's going to go ahead of us to, to, um, to Galilee. We're going to see him there again. Now, in the book of Matthew, in Matthew's telling... He chooses to skip over about 40 days of interaction that Jesus has with his disciples because to, something that uh, John said in his gospel, he said, if, if everything that Jesus said and did were to be written down, man, the world wouldn't be large enough to contain the books of, of the story. And so Matthew has to choose how much of this story he tells. And he chooses to skip over Jesus um, meeting a couple of his disciples who are downhearted and on their way back home and he meets them on that road back to their house and he basically explains to them how he really was the long-awaited Messiah and how they, you know, that exactly worked out the way that God always intended. He cuts out the part where Jesus comes into the upper room and meets the disciples, has a meal with them. And where he has a conversation with one of his doubting disciples, a guy named Thomas, who has a lot of questions and he answers them for him. He, he cuts out the part where Jesus reinstates Peter. You, know, you remember Peter, the guy who told Jesus, I will never, ever disown you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, man, before the night's even over, you're going to disown me three times. And sure enough, as Peter is standing around the campfire while Jesus is being tried. And somebody around the fire goes, aren't you, aren't you one of the disciples of that guy who's being tried? Oh, no, no, I don't know the guy. I have no idea what you're talking about. Not once, but three times he does that. And Jesus reinstates Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee while he's fishing. Probably Jeff would have been right there with him, right? So, so you, you, we jump over all of that and, and Matthew jumps right to the very last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes back up to be with his father and prepare the new Jerusalem for us. And, and if you want to turn with me here, let's go to the very last couple of verses of the book of Matthew. Matthew is right at the beginning of the New Testament. It's right before Mark. If you've got my Bible, it's on page like 968, but you probably don't have mine. So Matthew chapter 28. I know that's a pastor joke. I'm sorry. You've never heard that one before, right? Jesus talking to his disciples there in Galilee. He's about ready to go back to the Father. And the last thing he says to them is this. This is the Great Commission. He looks at his disciples in verse 18 of Matthew 28 and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. <clears throat> all authority has been given to me. Given to you by whom? The Father God, the creator and sustainer of the world. The one who is the rightful owner of everything we see and touch. He has given Jesus the authority over it. And Jesus says, because I have the authority, I am now commissioning you. I am giving you authority to go is as a representative, as an ambassador of me. And as you go... I want you to do what I've been doing over the course of these last three years. I want you to make more disciples. And when you hear the word disciple, it might be something we're not all that familiar with. 
A disciple is not just somebody who intellectually believes something about Jesus. A disciple is, by definition, a follower, somebody who follows in the footsteps of their teacher, of their rabbi. And they don't just follow him because they're like, oh, he's cool, I'm a fan. A disciple is somebody who is following their rabbi, their teacher, so that they can learn by modeling their life after the one that they're following. So that their life, their countenance, and everything they do will become more and more and more like their rabbi. Their goal of any disciple is to become like their rabbi. And Jesus is saying, in the same way that for the last three years you've been walking with me and you've been learning from me and you become more like me, your hearts have been shaped to be more like my heart, now I'm sending you to go make more disciples. To teach them the things that I have taught you. Discipleship equals obedience is a really good uh, way of understanding this. How do we be a disciple? You obey. So teaching them everything I've taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Basically, what I'm going to ask you to do is to continue what I've started doing in bringing people to a crisis of belief where they have to make a decision. Who do I think Jesus really is? What do I think happened on that Easter morning? What do I do with the empty tomb? And how should I live differently? That's basically the crisis of belief that Jesus was inviting them to bring them to. And here's the crazy part. The fact that we are standing here this morning, or I'm standing and you're sitting and Jeff is standing. He had some donuts. But the fact that we are sitting here this morning having this conversation is testament to the fact that those disciples did not shirk the commissioning that they were given by Jesus. That they did go, in fact, share the good news of what they had seen with their own eyes. They shared it with people who shared it with people who shared it with people. And ultimately, we find ourselves here today. Thank you, Jesus, for them. Thank you for their courage. Because it cost them a great deal. And here's the, here's the crazy irony I see between the two eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. First, you got a group of guys who sees the empty tomb, sees the angel, hears the testimony that Jesus is alive, and yet they choose to lie in order to live. Meanwhile, the ladies tell the disciples, and all of them decide we are going to tell the truth, even though it might cost us our lives. They died for their willingness to tell the truth while they lived, at least momentarily, for their willingness to lie. Now I would imagine that there are probably some of you in here this morning who want to push back and go, wait a minute, Eric. You're just assuming that they were telling the truth and that they were lying. But how do we know that they were telling the truth and that they were lying? Maybe the disciples really did steal the body. Well... Ultimately, we have to take this by faith, but there are a few really, really compelling pieces of evidence that I would just remind us of this morning. First off, there's the fact that the tomb was empty. That is not questioned by anybody, whether, you know, Jewish or, or, or Christian or even Roman. Uh, you know, every single person around there accepted the fact that the tomb was empty. The real question was, how did it get empty? They're suggesting, well... Those disciples, you know those cowardly ones that didn't even stick around when Jesus was being arrested? Those guys came and overpowered some, some Roman centurions, tied them up, broke the seal, stole the body. I don't know about you, but I don't have that much faith, right, to believe that. But even if we don't want to go that far and just say, well, I mean, that's, that's just one piece. The second piece of evidence, which is far more compelling to me, is the radical transformation we see in the countenance and demeanor of the disciples. Because let's remember, these are the same people who ran and hid when Jesus was arrested. These are the same people, like Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus when he was being tried. These are the same people who were hiding, huddled in some upper room because they were terrified that the same people who pointed at Jesus and said, he's got to die, are going to point at them and say, hey, we got to kill them too. And yet, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, in the same city where he died, we see a radical transformation, a radically different approach. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, I want to read just a, a brief section 
of, of the testimony that Peter, remember the guy who denied knowing Jesus three times, that Peter gave in the streets of Jerusalem, the same city where Jesus had died. And by the way, just so you understand what's going on, it's not like it was on a Tuesday at two in the morning where there was nobody around. This is during one of the high feasts, the Feast of Pentecost, which is exactly 50 days after Passover. Pentecost means 50. So this is a huge feast. There's tons of people, lots of Jews from all over the place, just like the Passover festival where Jesus was killed at. This is not two months after Jesus has been crucified. Now listen to the words of Paul that he is proclaiming at like 10 in the morning in the streets of Jerusalem, which I was there at 10 in the morning just a couple of weeks ago. Very crowded. This is how he begins. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, you saw them. You saw the guy that he raised from the dead, a guy named Lazarus. You've seen him. You've seen the people who were blind that he gave sight to. You've seen, some of you even tasted the wine that he turned from water. It was good stuff. You guys are going to have some wine later, I'm sure. Whatever. So he was accredited to you. Through God, by the miracles, wonders, and signs which he did amongst you through him, as you yourself know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. By the way, didn't take God by surprise. Knew it was going to happen. In fact, it was part of his plan all along. And you, this is the crazy part, and you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He keeps going. You guys have seen this. And let's just jump to the end of this. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this carpenter from Nazareth, this Jesus that you guys killed, murdered, conspired against he has made this jesus whom you crucified both lord and messiah when the people heard this they were cut to the heart and they said to peter and the other apostles brother what should we do like how do we respond to this And, and peter replied repent turn from your wicked ways and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins as if Our sins can actually be forgiven. We can do that through Christ. Our sins can actually be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit through whom the world was created. The same Spirit that anointed Jesus throughout his public ministry. Enabling him, although he had taken on human flesh and emptied himself of his godhood. Because the Spirit was in him, he could heal people. He could raise people from the dead. He could cast out demons. And ultimately that Spirit raised him from the dead. And that same Spirit will be given to you as a mark of ownership. As God saying, this one's mine. This promise is for you and for your children and for who all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call, some of whom are sitting in this room this morning. I hope all of us in this, mor- this morning that that Holy Spirit is in our hearts or will be soon. Now that doesn't sound like the words of a coward, does it? It doesn't sound like the words of a guy who is terrified for his life. That sounds like a guy who is so utterly convinced that he will stand in the streets where his rabbi, his Lord, his Savior dragged an implement of torture through those streets and ultimately hung on it not two months before. And he's willing to say, you guys killed him. God brought him back to life. And he is your long-awaited Messiah. So stop resisting. But as if if that was not compelling enough, consider the third piece of evidence. Consider the cost to Peter and the other disciples of what it meant to share that gospel message. Most of them died because they were unwilling to recant their belief in Jesus the Messiah. Peter, the guy who said, I don't even know Jesus, he was ultimately crucified because he was unwilling 
to say, no, I don't believe in Jesus. No, I accept that he's not the Messiah. He was unwilling to do that. And so they crucified him, but he did not even feel worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. So he asked to be crucified upside down. Others of Jesus' disciples were killed for their faith through crucifixion, through stoning, through murder. Some were thrown to the lions, and yet they willingly did that. Now, I, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself. I have stretched the truth once or twice in my life this week. <laughs> Jeff is a fisherman, so you know he's stretched the truth, right? <laughs> but I would never be willing to die for something that I knew to be a lie. And yet, so many of Jesus' disciples, countless of them, gave their life because they were unwilling to deny what they knew to be true, what they had seen with their own eyes. They gave their life willingly. So what does this mean for us this morning? Right? Because at the end of the day, okay, that's compelling evidence, but what are we supposed to do with this? Ultimately, we are faced with the same question that those Roman guards and the, the Jewish leaders and the women who, who saw the res- resurrected Jesus and the disciples. We are faced with the same questions they had to answer. What do we do with the empty tomb? What do I believe happened? And what am I going to do about it? Let me put this question a slightly different way. Who is Jesus to you? Is he some failed revolutionary who tried to stand up to Rome or even maybe try to stand up to the Jewish elite, but ultimately got ground up in the gears of the Roman machine? Was he some liar? who talked a really good game and in fact was able to convince some people that he did miracles when in fact he was just doing regular stuff but ultimately was killed for it? Was he a lunatic that was convinced in his mind that he was somebody greater than he really was? He had illusions of grandeur and ultimately he paid the ultimate price for it. Or, or was he the son of God who came And took on human flesh specifically so that he could die in our place. So that God's image bearers could be saved from the penalty of sin. So that we could be restored back into relationship with our Father. And that the grave was empty because he had overcome death. And that he was alive. And is worthy to be our Lord. He is worthy for us to follow him. Each of us need to give an answer to that question. Each of them ultimately had to give an answer as well. The guards, the Sanhedrin, the ladies, the the rest of the disciples, all of them needed to answer that question. I find it very interesting that this side of the room, not you guys, I'm talking about the the guards and the... I love you guys. That this group of individuals chose to deny Jesus to treat the miraculous like it was mundane so that they could preserve the status quo for the the Jewish ruling elite so that they could maintain their control, what shreds of it they had left under the umbrella of Rome, that they could somehow keep their tenuous grip on power. And for the guards, just so they could live another day. Whereas they were willing to tell the truth, even though it cost them greatly, cost them family, cost them jobs, cost them being able to be out in the open, and ultimately cost them their lives. One of the last conversations Jesus had with his disciples, you don't have to turn here, but in Matthew chapter 16, one of the last conversations Jesus had with his disciples before they made it to Jerusalem, he's walking along and he asks them, who do people say that I am? Oh, they think you're one of the, you know, prophets. They think you're Elijah come back to life or we don't know. You know, they they think you're lots of different things. Maybe you're even John the Baptist. The spirit of John the Baptist is on you. And he's like, okay, well, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. You're you're the son of God. You're the long-awaited redeemer of Israel. He's like, okay, that's true. And then he tells him, well, I want to tell you what's going to happen. 
so you're not caught unaware. We're going to go to Jerusalem now. And when we get there, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be mocked, beaten, and spat upon. And ultimately, I am going to die like a common criminal on a cross. And Peter, who's the oldest, kind of saddles up next to Jesus and goes, Hey, Jesus, that's really a discouraging message. You don't want to keep talking that way, okay? Because you're confusing the guys. We all know you're the Messiah. We all know you're going to overcome Rome. So come on, what are you doing? Is this another one of your parables? And Jesus looks at Peter and goes, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Harsh, right? And then he says, and then he says, you have in mind the things of human beings rather than the things of God. And then listen to these words. Jesus turns to the rest of the disciples. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. The guards and the Sanhedrin chose to try to save their lives, tried to save the status quo, and in the process they missed their Messiah. They missed the hope that they could find in him. We don't know the whole story, and perhaps they found it ultimately. But they resisted and missed who Jesus was. Meanwhile, these disciples embraced the truth for what it was and were willing to embrace the new purpose and commissioning that Jesus had for them, namely to continue to share the good news regardless of the cost. And they lost their life. And I have to ask, although they remained living and they were killed, who ultimately made the better decision in the perspective of eternity? We ultimately have to make the same decision for ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? And what happened 2,000 years ago on that first Easter morning? What happened? How you answer that question will have a radical implication on the, not only the rest of your life, but on your eternal trajectory. Who is Jesus to you? Now I know that there are a lot of us in here this morning who have already answered that question for ourselves. And we've come to the conclusion that Jesus is alive, and that's why the grave is empty, that he was who he said he was, and he did what he said he came to do, namely to die in our place, to overcome and break the chains of sin and death so that we could be restored back into relationship with God. He died for us so that we prodigals could come home and be adopted back into God's big, beautiful, dysfunctional family. And then to be his ambassadors of hope, sharing the good news that we have found. That's why Jesus came. That's why this cross, which used to be an implement of torturous death, is actually something we adorn sometimes on our bodies. We wear around our necks as a celebration that even the cross couldn't overcome the Spirit of God and his Son. And what God did for us by sending Jesus to die is the greatest act of love in history. That's why we celebrate the cross, even though it's an awful, horrible way to die. So some of us have come to that decision in our hearts. We have said, you know what, Jesus? I believe you are who you said you are, and I'm going to choose to be your disciple. I'm not just going to give you intellectualists, and I'm not just going to pray some prayer and say, I'm good to go, and then go on living your life the way you used to do. We have decided to follow Jesus. Remember, his invitation was never pray a prayer, and certainly you'll be with me in heaven today. His invitation was follow me. Was it enough to believe on your deathbed? Sure. There was one of those men hanging on a cross next to him who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, certainly you will be with me in heaven today. And unless Jesus spat on him, I don't think he was baptized. I don't think he ever prayed a prayer. But because he believed Jesus, because he respected who Jesus was, because of the humility of his heart and the posture of his heart, Jesus said, that's enough. But the invitation has always been an invitation to discipleship. Follow me. Learn from me. Walk with me. 
allow the ups and downs of life through this broken, sin-scarred world to shape your heart to be a better reflection of my heart. And there are a lot of us in this room who have tasted and seen that Jesus is alive and he is good and following him is the best decision we've ever made. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, there are some of us in here this morning who have yet to come to that determination for a lot of different reasons. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing this. Or maybe you just don't feel like you're worthy of it, right? Now, being forgiven? No. If you knew the stuff I did, can I just remind you, you're in a room full of people who don't deserve it. Okay? So you're in good company. None of us deserved it, which is why it's grace and not uh, payment for services rendered for doing enough good things to earn it. It's grace, and that's what grace means. It, it, it is an undeserved gift. But this morning, um, for those of you who, who are at this point where you go, I don't know what I believe. Or maybe you, there's something in your heart that's saying, I want to believe, but what do I do? It's as easy as ABC. A, admit that you are incapable of being the captain of your own ship, that you cannot save yourself. I certainly can't. I tried. Didn't go so well. Admit that you need to be saved. B, believe that Jesus is alive, that he was the son of God who died in your place and that that was enough that you don't have to do a single thing more to be restored back into relationship with God because God loved you enough to send his son for you to die in your place. He loved you that much. And then see, choose to follow him. Not just choose, okay, I believe, I'm good, got my ticket punched, let's go back to, you know, whatever, you know, cesspool that you crawled out of, right? We all do. But I choose to follow you. Are you going to do it imperfectly? You better believe it. Let me just lower your expectations right now. You will stumble. You will wake up mornings wondering, how did I crawl back into that pigsty that I had crawled out of before that he rescued me out of? There will be moments where you go, God, I don't deserve you. And you'll say, that's the point. And I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. My Jesus died for you. So come home and let me clean you up. Just admit that you need him. Believe that he can save you and then choose to follow him. It is the best decision you will ever make. We're going to worship. We are going to celebrate the gift that God paid for 2,000 years ago. We're going to celebrate the fact that even though he paid that price, it was not an eternal separation from Jesus because he has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's try that again. He has risen. Good job, Pete. You trained him well. Okay, so we're going to celebrate that. Now, I would imagine that there are some of you in here this morning, however, who just the weight of what you've carried in with you is overwhelming and you just go, man, I just, need, I just need somebody to pray with me or I don't know even how to pray right now to accept this gift. It's as easy as saying, thank you, I, I receive it. But I would imagine, by the way, that if you are at that point where you're saying, yes, I, Jesus, I want to believe, you probably have a lot of questions. I would hope you have a lot of questions because we haven't answered any, many of them yet. And over the next couple of months, we're going to have a conversation. It's a family conversation about what does it mean to be part of the family of God? What does that look like? How do we deal with differences? How do we, what, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? We're going to have those conversations over the next couple of months. But we just want to begin by praying with you. And so um, if you would like prayer for that or you would like prayer for something else you've carried in with you that's burdening you, Jeff's going to be in the back. Byron and Diane, would you guys be over here? My wife Kathy and I will be over here. Um, let's, just, let's just worship God and celebrate the greatest act of love in history. Father God, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. Thank you for redeeming us. And thank you for bringing us to a point this morning where we need to make a decision for ourselves. Who do I say Jesus is? Is he, is he a liar, a lunatic, or is he going to be the Lord of my life? 
And Father God, I pray that you would give my brothers and my sisters the courage to listen to your spirit. I pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit's presence and that you, Holy Spirit, would begin to clean house. Lord knows, you know, Jesus, how much we need it. But Father, help yourself to our lives that we, your sons and daughters, would be your representatives, your ambassadors of hope, that another generation beyond us would hear the good news and come to accept you as their Savior and as their Lord. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.
well, hey, I've got some, I've got some good news. I'm going to get a new battery for my... There we go. Good news is that little seven-year-old girl has been found. So, the lost has been found, and I am just so grateful for the ways that Jesus... Um, was willing to give his life, that our Father didn't give up on us so that we who were lost could be found as well. Um, So, Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the ridiculous truth that you paid the price so that we could be restored back to relationship with you even though we had rebelled against you. And you just said, I'm not going to give up on you. I love you too much. We are grateful, Father God, that you invite us into relationship. And Jesus, we just say lead on. As we leave this place, this is just a building. We are the church. We are your children. We are your ambassadors. And now we embrace the same commissioning you gave to your disciples 2,000 years ago. To go make more disciples. Go and share what we have learned with others. Share the good news so that they come to a crisis of belief as well. Who do I think that Jesus is? And how will I live because of that? Would you go with us, Jesus, in your holy name? Amen. Have a wonderful week.